Instead of relying on plants to try to mimic the meat experience, what we're doing is essentially using mycelium or mycoprotein. You take something that is way more meat-like just naturally, it comes out of the fermenter in this meat-like state. And so what we do is take potatoes and feed them to microscopic fungi in a fermentation process. We feed them for less than a day. Then we harvest them and you have automatically a product that really looks and tastes like animal meat. And it's like a superfood. Our mycoprotein has more protein than eggs, more iron than beef, more fiber than oats, more potassium than bananas, and because it's a product of microbial fermentation, it naturally contains vitamin B12, unlike plant foods. Like plant foods. That's Paul Shapiro, and this is a Proof Podcast. Hey, beautiful friends. Welcome back to another episode. As always, it's an absolute pleasure to be here with you. For those who are tuning in for the very first time, it's great to have you with us. I'm Simon Hill, host of this show, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. Today we hear from Paul Shapiro, author of Clean Meat and the CEO and co-founder of The Better Meat Co., a USA-based company that is producing a very novel type of protein called mycoprotein, mycoprotein, a whole food source of animal-free protein that's loaded with fiber and other essential nutrients. If it's the first time you've heard of mycoprotein, you may be thinking, what is it and how is it produced? That you shall find out in this conversation. For now, let me just tell you that it's pretty neat. Why did I want to have Paul on the show and, and why do I feel this conversation is important? Well, one of the biggest problems humanity faces right now is working out how to produce enough protein to feed 11 billion people in a sustainable manner by 2050. The environmental science that we have has made it incredibly clear that it's impossible to do this with the current food system and reliance on animal agriculture, owing to the fact that turning calories from plants into animal-based meat is incredibly inefficient, resource-intensive, emits reckless amounts of greenhouse gas emissions and requires enormous amounts of land, which means mass deforestation and removal of natural carbon sinks, areas of land that would otherwise help cool the planet. Thankfully, we have a myriad of solutions supported by science that can together help guide us out of this position that we find ourselves in. Alternative proteins like mycoprotein being one of these. So with that context, please do sit back and enjoy this exchange between myself and Paul Shapiro on all things Better Meat. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. 
The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Paul, welcome. Great to be doing this finally. Good to be here with you in Los Angeles doing this in person. Word is on the street that you are a bit of a marathon runner these days. Am I right that you've ramped up the training over the past year? Well, the street's word is only somewhat accurate. So, uh, yeah, you know, actually, I, I ran a marathon back in 2013 because of Rich Roll. Like, I was into running, but then I read Finding Ultra, and I was, like, totally inspired. And uh, so Rich was my inspiration for that. But what's funny is, like, during the pandemic, I stopped doing a lot of lifting because the gyms were closed. So I started running a lot more and I got way more into long distance. And this uh, buddy of mine named uh, Jed sort of like training me essentially to get PRs for like my half marathon and my 5k and my one mile and all this. And so uh, I was doing that. Um, but speaking of rich, it's funny, you know, cause I was doing a lot more running during the pandemic that I had in the years prior. And I had this vision that would always inspire me when I was running. If things were getting tough, like I was going too fast or too long, it was too hard. I had not the good and the bad angels on my shoulders, 
but I had Rich, who's kind of like like a New Testament God, like a kind, forgiving God, you know? <laughs> like, so he's telling me I'm good and I can do this, you know? But then on the other, I have David Goggins. And so he's telling me like what a piece <laughs> of shit I am and how, you know, like, come on. Hot enough. Yeah, right, exactly. And so whichever God I needed was like an Old Testament wrathful, angry God like Goggins or like a New Testament God of love like uh, Rich. That was what I would rely on for my inspiration to run either faster or further during the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> so... What did we just try, Paul? Walk me through that steak. All right, Simon. Well, first and foremost, let's just talk briefly about how plant-based meat is made today, right? Because nearly all plant-based meat is made from one of three crops, soy, pea, or wheat, and or some combination of them. And those are great. They're plants, but you know, plants and animals are really far apart, evolutionarily speaking. And so to get a pea, for example, to taste like an animal takes a lot. You know, grow the field of peas. You've got to harvest that field. You've got to mill it into a pea flour, but that pea flour is pretty low in protein. So then you've got to fractionate it. So you remove the fiber, remove the fat, get that pea protein powder. That's now a high protein product, but it doesn't have the texture of animal meat. So you subject it to extrusion, which is basically a fancy way of saying lots of pressure, lots of heat. And it creates this new type of texturized pea protein at the very end of that process. So now you have this granule of texturized pea protein that when you hydrate it, it becomes like the basis of, let's say, a Beyond Burger or another type of plant-based meat. And those products are great, but, you know, it's just really hard. It's a lot of things that you have to do to those plants to get them to be more like animal meat. And so the question is, can we replicate animal meat without needing to go to the plant kingdom at all? And so if you go instead to the fungi kingdom you end up being a lot closer to animals. So, you know, for, to the extent that people think about it, you got plants and you got animals, right? Those are very far apart. And then you have this other kingdom, fungi, and they're not right in the middle. The fungi are not in the middle. They are right next to, right next to animals, right? In fact, you just think about it. Like, so fungi are so much closer to animals than to plants that like us, they breathe in oxygen and they breathe out CO2, which is the opposite of what plants do. Plants just put themselves in the sun. They photosynthesize. Fungi, like animals, have to search out for their food and digest it and consume it. So this is why mushrooms are much meatier than our plants. In fact, mushrooms have been used in Asian cuisine for centuries as a meat substitute. So fungi versus mushrooms, they're used interchangeably, but there's a little difference there, right? That's right. So basically all mushrooms are fungi, but not all fungi are mushrooms. So <laughs> like squares and rectangles. So, you know, basically a fungi is the, this kingdom, right? So, but the mushroom is the fruiting body of the fungi. So a mushroom is kind of like the apple on a tree in the plant world, right? So a tree has the apples, that's the mushroom equivalent. And then the body of that tree is what we might call mycelium in the fungi world. And so fungi have mycelium, which is basically like that root-like structure underneath the mushroom that is oftentimes high in protein and meat-like in texture. However, one more little curveball for you, about 90% of fungal species don't produce mushrooms at all. So we think about these as being interchangeable, but in fact, nearly all fungi do not produce any mushrooms. And that sort of root system in the soil, yeah. am I correct in that there is communication between, uh, say, a mushroom and a plant via that sort of interweb? Yeah, so you know, people refer to this as the wood wide web, where basically you have what's called mycorrhizal connections. So that basically means you've got myco, which is Greek for fungi, and rhizal, which is like roots. So the roots of the plants are essentially trading with the um, with the mycelium that's down there, and they're trading nutrients, they're communicating, and they're working in harmony. In fact, some plants can't live at all without having mycelium in the soil. A healthy soil is going to have that mycelium in it, and so. 
What we at the Better Meco are doing is instead of relying on plants to try to mimic the meat experience, what we're doing is essentially using mycelium or mycoprotein. And what you can do then is you take something that is way more meat-like just naturally. You don't have to mill it and fractionate it and isolate it and extrude it just on its own. It comes out of the fermenter in this meat-like state. And so what we do is essentially take potatoes and feed them to microscopic fungi in a fermentation process. We do this in Sacramento. So it's kind of like a cow eats grass and eventually makes steak, right? But it takes a really long time, more than a year of feeding a cow before you slaughter her, and then you get your steak. Well, with our little microscopic fungi, we feed them for less than a day. You know, we inoculate our fermenter, and they eat potatoes for less than a day. Then we harvest them, and you have automatically a product that really, as you just saw, really looks and tastes like animal meat without the need for all of those uh, inter-processing steps. And it's like a superfood. I mean, this thing, uh, you know, our mycoprotein has more protein than eggs, more iron than beef, more fiber than oats, more potassium than bananas, and because it's a product of microbial fermentation, it naturally contains vitamin B12, unlike plant foods. So this is like a real superfood, and whether you're you know, a strict plant-based eater or whether you're somebody who just enjoys eating plant-based food, it's got that protein that you want, but it has the fiber that you need because as you correctly pointed out so many times, Simon, nobody's protein deficient here. You know, well, Probably nobody listening to this podcast is protein deficient. I would go so far as to wager my guess is that people listening to this podcast have probably never met a protein deficient person. Person, yet the vast majority of people in, in you know, Western societies are fiber deficient. We're not getting enough fiber, and that leads to all types of problems, not just constipation, but colon cancer and all types of other problems. So, so people, I mean, you really need to see this to, to believe it. It does, it looks like steak. The texture is like steak. It tastes incredible. Do you, do you find when people try this for the first time, their minds are blown? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So if you think about plant-based meat today, right, it, it, nearly all of it is mimicking ground animal meat, right? So it's burgers, dogs, meatballs, sausages, things that are ground, which are just easier to replicate than a whole muscle cut, like a chicken breast or a steak. And it's just hard to do that with plants. But when you go to fungi, you can actually create a much more meat-like experience. And so that's the magic of going to fungi is that we can get a meatier product with less processing. Now, keep in mind, I'm all for plant-based meats. I, I, you know, I love eating all the plant-based meats that are on the market. That's awesome. Um, but this is a next generation. So instead of relying just on wheat, pea, and soy, we can also now rely on a mycoprotein that companies like the Better Meat Co. are making in order to create a better meat experience. Because, you know, my belief, Simon, is just about like this. Let's say you walk into a room and you flip on a light switch, right? What you want is the experience of light. You want an illuminated room. You're not thinking about, well, is this light coming from fossil fuels? Is it coming from renewables? You just want light. And the same is so with meat. Most people want meat, but they're not thinking, oh, I'm so glad an animal was slaughtered for this, right? If anything, if they did think about it, they might prefer the animal not be slaughtered for it, actually. And so if we can replicate that animal meat experience without the need to raise animals, I really think a lot of people would be quite happy to eat animal-free meat. I'm laughing inside because of the title of my book. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and, and also, I'm hearing you say plant-based meat how do you sort of categorize this product of yours? Is it a, is it a plant-based meat given that you are feeding potato and other plant-based ingredients to the fungi or is this a, a fungi-based <laughs> It's more fungi. It'd be kind of like saying, is this steak grass-based steak because the cow ate grass? No, not really. But, you know, I will say that, um, you know, 
most people were not even familiar with the fact that fungi aren't plants. I mean, let's say you let's say you went to a restaurant and they had a, you know, the plant-based option was a portobello burger. And, you know, nobody's going to say, oh, that's false advertising. You know, portobellos aren't plants, right? Oh, well, uh, there's, it's a different story on Twitter. Let me tell you, there's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's plenty of people that point out to me that uh, mushrooms aren't plants, mate. <laughs> that's funny. Okay. Well, you know, the, there, there's, a, there's a growing chorus of uh, fungi fanatics out there, and I'm very uh, honored to be among them. But um, in the everyday, you know, the everyday language of people, most people are not not thinking that there's a difference. And that's fine. In fact, you know, for, for decades, you know, plant biology has been like, if you look at departments and universities and so on, they don't even have fungi biology. Um, they have plant biology and animal biology. And to the extent that mushrooms are studied at all, it's part of plant biology, despite the fact these are like totally different kingdoms. So I, I do think like, you know, there's some license that you can take in, in, colloquially referring to these as all the same. But scientifically, yeah, they are different. And from a product development perspective, they're extremely different. And that's what's most important here is because, you know, the goal is to help displace the raising and slaughtering of billions and billions of animals with products that can satiate the meat tooth, so to speak, that people have. Uh, because, you know, as you've pointed out, uh, you know, despite the fact that uh, books like yours are well-selling and despite the fact that a lot of people listen to podcasts like yours and similar ones, Meat demand is going up, not down. And, you know, per capita meat consumption has never been higher. We've never been raising more animals than we do today. And in the places where it's going to matter the most in the future, like China and India and Brazil and so on, meat demand is skyrocketing there as well. And so we've got to do something. Like, people want meat. And I wish that weren't true. I mean, I've been a vegan since 1993. I wish more people saw the world the way that I see it. But people want meat. And even vegans seem to want meat since they love celebrating the new incarnations of Impossible and Beyond products, which is great. Um, but we got to provide a way to divorce meat production from livestock rearing and slaughtering. Otherwise, we're headed to disaster. Redefining what meat is. I think by 2050, we need to be able to produce double the amount of protein that's produced today. It's insane. I mean, think about it. There's nearly 8 billion of us walking around on the planet today. And the projections are, presuming there's no catastrophe that happens between now and then, by 2050, there's going to be another 2 billion of us added, and there's going to be increased wealth, and, and so that means more meat. And like basically, people tend to buy as much meat as they can afford. And so, how are we going to do it? You know, the planet is not getting any bigger. Humanity's footprint on the planet is getting a lot bigger, but the planet isn't getting any bigger. We're not going to be farming the moon. We're not going to be farming Mars. We have one celestial body to farm. And we've already destroyed a huge portion of it. Like how many more trees do we want to chop down so that we can raise more animals or raise more crops to feed those animals? It's just a dead end for us. We need to do better. And that starts with helping to reduce our reliance on animals for food. And I'll tell you something, you know, there's a lot of people, and I used to be one of them, who think, well, if we just tell people, right, just tell people the facts and they'll change. Like, sadly, that's just not enough. Now, most people, facts don't change many people's behavior. And you know, if you look at other categories of animal exploitation that have been ended, virtually always, it's because of a technological innovation. So think about it like this. You go back 150 years, everybody's lighting their homes with whale oil. Many people were concerned about the treatment of whales. There were letters to the editor in 19th century newspapers all about uh, the sustainability or lack thereof of whaling. And what freed whales wasn't sustainability concerns. It was the invention of kerosene, which provided a cheaper and cleaner way to light our homes. Or if you look at the way the animal welfare movement was really founded was about the abuses of horses in, in the carriage industry. They campaigned for all types of reforms. They wanted watering stations for horses, resting hours for horses, Sabbath days where they couldn't be worked at all. And then Henry Ford did more to liberate horses than the animal advocates ever even dreamt of doing. He just rendered their exploitation obsolete. 
you know, we used to live pluck geese, I mean, for quills, for writing. I mean, Thomas Jefferson was actually such a prolific writer. He had his own flock of geese where they were live plucked just to give him all the quills. And nobody stopped live plucking geese because they cared about geese. They stopped because metal fountain pens were invented. And so the list goes on and on and on of all these examples of technological innovations that ended categories of animal exploitation. And I think the same is so with meat. It's not going to happen merely because people decide, hey, this is wrong what we're doing. We have to provide better alternatives that mimic, again, that meat experience so that people can satiate their meat tooth, like I said, but without causing so many problems in the process. What do you think that is about humans and the human psyche that, you know, I can understand when we're kept at such a distance from how our food is produced, right? What you see on the shelves in no way reflects what occurred to get that product there. You know, it's false advertising, right? You know, you often hear people saying that, you know, if only people knew, but you're right. Like you can show someone what's happening in a factory farm and it doesn't necessarily result in change in behavior. Yeah, it, it rarely does. In fact, you know, there's like this saying that is popular among many animal advocates that if Slaughterhouse had glass walls, we'd all be vegetarian, but it's just not true. <laughs> it's just not true. Well, like what is it about humans you think that, that allows you to see what's happening and to acknowledge that that is not in line with your beliefs and values, but then to to go and act in a way that is contradicting those beliefs. Yeah, I think that we did not evolve in a world where that type of like supply and demand um, experience was occurring. So it's not that there weren't issues of supply and demand, but it's that you know, you saw what was happening, right? It wasn't like you pay somebody money for them to go do something that you don't like out of sight and then you come back. Like we, you know, it, it's kind of like, you know, I think of it kind of like clothing. Like, you know, most people, um, I would imagine a lot of people who listen to this podcast would probably vote to ban, you know, the sale of sweatshop goods, right? Um, but, you know, they're very happy to go buy clothing that's really cheap that you presume was probably made in a sweatshop and you don't think about it. And that doesn't mean you're necessarily a bad person. It just means it's tough to align our consumer behavior with our ethical uh, principles that we adhere to. So uh, I just think it's really tough for uh, to expect people to act in a way that really we didn't evolve to act in, honestly. Um, you know, a lot of people wouldn't be uh, that keen on going and tormenting animals in the way that they are routinely tormented on factory farms and in slaughter plants. But if you're not seeing it, it's, you know, it's hard to imagine your connection to it and that you are responsible for it. And even if you do see it, we are pretty good at just going with the crowd and realizing everybody else is doing this. So I may as well go along with it too. Which speaks to the I mean, the importance of everything that you're doing, which is a systems focus. How can you change the way the food environment is showing up? Yeah, that, and you make a great point of this in your book about how to change the, the food environment to incentivize and basically make it easier to do the right thing. And I do want to be clear. I'm not saying that videos about what happened to farm animals aren't important. I think they are. I think they're really important, actually. But they're not sufficient they're just not sufficient. And they will change some people. They changed me. I mean, the reason I became vegan was after seeing one of those videos back in 93, actually. So uh, there's there are some people, but we have to remember, most people who see them don't change. And the studies show most people who become vegan stop being vegan. So, you know, we just have to remember, like, it's very easy for social creatures like us to go with the crowd. And, you know, right now, uh, you know, the number of vegans is a rounding error in the total population. We in, who live in this bubble, we think is huge because we see so much uh, going on and we you know, see the latest release from beyond or the latest fast food restaurant to carry it and we get all excited, which is good. I, I too get excited about it. But we have to remember that plant-based meat today is still by volume less than 1% of the total meat market, less than 1%. 
I mean, it, it's barely and it's barely a rounding error. And so just a lot more work that needs to be done. And what motivates most food decisions is not ethical concern. Like people are not thinking when they're buying food about ethics most of the time. They're thinking, does this food taste good? Is it cost effective for me? And is it convenient for me to obtain? That's really what they're thinking. And I think we should remember that because if you look at what so many uh, people in the plant-based community argue, they say, well, why should I go plant-based? And you say, well, you know, it's better for animals. It's better for the planet. It's better for your health. But animals and the planet and health are not the top few reasons why most food is purchased. Uh, health gets up there for a good portion of the population, but not everybody. In fact, probably not most people. But these are just not arguments that are really motivating a lot of food purchases. For a small minority of people, they are, but not for most. And also, you, you spoke of the developing world, and that's just so important in this context, right? It's completely reasonable and fair that they, they want to prosper and enjoy the perks of the Western life, the industrialized life that, that we've created. But we have to acknowledge that in creating that, we've also created some collateral damage, and we need to assume some responsibility to help them prosper but do so in a way that is better for the environment, better for the animals along the way. Yeah, and that could start by leading by example ourselves. Uh, you know, we are leading in the Western world a very terrible example. I mean, meat demand continues to go up. It continues to go up. It's not like, hey, we're cutting back on our meat consumption and now we're going to tell people in China, hey, you shouldn't eat so much meat. Like, we still are eating sky-high amounts of meat. It's, it's, truly, uh, it's truly incredible, especially for people who live in the plant-based bubble to think about it, but we got to just play the cards as they're dealt. And again, you know, right now the numbers are going in the wrong direction. And so we got to do something. And in my view, I, I'm all for the ethical arguments. I think the health arguments are great. They're very compelling. But at the same time, we have to make it easy and we have to make it sacrifice-free so that people who want a steak can go out and get a steak. It just doesn't have to have come from an animal. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. 
I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. So take me back to 93. You mentioned that was the time in your journey where you came across information relating to the way that animals are treated and the production of food. Walk me through that. Uh, you know, I was a young kid and um, a friend of mine had this uh, tape about, it was like a, you know, a slaughter plant and factory farm tape. And I keep in mind, you know, there's no YouTube, there's no uh, internet for us to watch this on. He had like a VHS tape. You know, for those of you too young to know, a VHS tape was like a rectangular piece of plastic that you'd insert into this thing and it would show you videos, kind of like YouTube, except far less convenient. And you'd have a little label on the front that would uh, have the name or you'd handwrite it on there. <laughs> yeah. And if you rented it, it said, be kind, please rewind, to make sure, so the next person wouldn't have to rewind uh, or wait to rewind the video. The good old days, spending all that time in Blockbuster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I talk about that a lot, actually, because, you know, people sometimes wonder, well, if we reduce our reliance on animals, what will happen to the people who are slaughtering animals? Well, you know, it's kind of like, you know, are you shedding tears for when you're streaming Netflix for the Blockbuster employees? Probably not. Um, it's not to say we don't need to find solutions. We should. Um, but, you know, there's new jobs that are created with each creation of a new industry. But to answer your question directly, Simon, so my friend showed me this video and he was not showing it in like a evangelical way, right? He wasn't like, oh, you should watch this so you can become a vegetarian. He was like, it was kind of like, I don't know if you ever saw Faces of Death, but it was like this old video back then. Boys liked watching because it, it showed people dying and you'd be like, dude, this is sick. Yeah, it was like horrible. It was nightmare inducing. Uh, but my friend showed this to me like to basically be like, dude, you got to check this out. This is crazy. Um, and I watched it. And my reaction at the time was just to think about my own dogs because I grew up with dogs and they were like my brothers and sisters. And I thought, well, if that was my dogs in that cage or hanging upside down in that slaughter plant, like, what would I do? And the answer is, there's nothing I wouldn't do to prevent that. And I thought, well, if I wouldn't want that for my dogs, why would I want it for any animal? So I became a vegetarian. I never heard of, of anything to do with vegans. So I wrote to like snail mail letters to uh, groups that promoted vegetarianism to ask them for more information. And I was like, you know, kind of like a little bit nervous. I knew that there were vegetarians, so I didn't think I was going to die, but I did think you know, I got to do this right. So I wrote to them and I asked them to send me stuff. So I get back this information, like these literature brochures and stuff. And I'm reading about what I thought was called vegan, right? I'm like, oh, all right. And I, I truly believed at that time. I was like, well, it kind of sounds noble, but I mean, like I thought, you know, I thought of being quote vegan as being like, like holding your breath. Like you can hold your breath for some time, but if you do it too long, you'll die. And that's what I thought. I was like, maybe you can go for some time without eating any animal products, but you'll surely you'll die, right? So I didn't do it at first, but then 
couple weeks later, I started meeting people like in the animal welfare community. I started volunteering for groups and I learned that they were vegans, not vegans, and that they were, had been doing it for some time. And one of them gave me this interview. It was an interview with my hero, Carl Lewis. Now, for those of you too young, you won't remember this, but he was like the Usain Bolt back then, you know? He was like the number one Olympian, this American track athlete who had amazing records, both in like the 100 meter and the long jump. And he was just like, I posters of Carl Lewis in my room at my parents' house. And like, I just loved Carl Lewis. And in the interview, he talked about how his best performances were when he was vegan. And I, that blew me away because that was like, you know, now like people can just go watch Game Changers or whatever. But, you know, back then, you know, I didn't, you know, there was nothing. Like, and I was like, are you kidding me? Like, not only is this better to do for animals, and not only will I not die, but actually like the top athlete in the world, as far as I was concerned, was vegan. And so that was it. And that pushed me over the edge. And um, I'm 28 years later, I'm, I haven't died yet. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about transitioning to a vegan diet in the early 90s from a social point of view and how your family and, and friends accepted that? Uh, my parents were pretty concerned about it, to be honest with you. So um, they they were afraid for like my health. And so they were like, hey, you know, we need to go see a nutritionist. And I, I was like, what's a nutritionist? <laughs> I didn't even know what that was. So they pull out the yellow pages, and um, which is kind of like Google back in the day, for those of you not familiar with the yellow pages, if you're not old enough for that. But they picked a nutritionist just who was geographically close. Uh, I, my recollection is I think that they, they wanted to find somebody who was both close and had a Jewish last name. <laughs> so I think was their, their goal there. But uh, anyway, so we went to go see her. And uh, by like the sheerest of coincidences, almost like divine intervention in my life, she was vegan. And I could not believe it. I was like, you know, thanking the heavens. And so, you know, I wouldn't say... It was, you know, easy by any means. Um, I mean, I remember like mixing soy milk powder, like you'd buy the powder and you'd mix it in water and that was like your soy milk. And, and you know, you, you did have some products back then like Light Life and, um, and Tofurky and others. And so I ate those products and I liked them. Amy's frozen bean and rice burritos were like a really big staple for me at school. <laughs> but, you know, people like now they joke about it like, oh, you know, back then when I became vegan, the world was in black and white and it was snowing all the time and we had to walk uphill both ways. Uh, you know, it wasn't like that for me. It was just it's a lot easier now, a lot more convenient, especially when you're going out to restaurants or traveling, you know. But honestly, I wouldn't say it was easy by any means, but I, I think it was doable for somebody who was motivated enough. And so how, how old were you then, if you don't mind me asking? I, I don't mind, no. I was 14 then. Yeah. So you were 14. So you were, you were a young kid. How was, you know, navigating school life and just, the, the social aspect of, of eating in a different manner. Yeah, um, I would say it was ostracizing in some respects. However, at that same time, a few other uh, kids in my school also became vegan. And so we became like this vegan crew, you know? And we were As like- As you do. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> we're like a vegan crew and then we had like a band and so we played shows and we like sang about veganism. So for us, it was like, you know, it was definitely, we felt like- You had a tribe. Yeah, that's right. I, I never felt isolated, honestly. Um, and I just felt like, I, I also was getting more and more involved in like uh, volunteering in the animal protection world. And so I met uh, lots of adults who felt the same and that that was like a home for me, honestly. So you must have, I mean, from an advocacy point of view and an animal welfare point of view, you must have seen some changes. What are some of the the sort of major changes that you've seen since 93 in terms of the ethical treatment of 
animals in this country or abroad? So, you know, it's interesting you ask that because in some ways, like society is way more sensitive to the plight of animals today than then. And in some respects, things have gotten better. So for example, dogfighting and cockfighting are now felonized in all 50 states in the U.S. A number of states have now passed laws to restrict certain kinds of factory farming practices that are particularly inhumane. But in general, you know, compared from then to now, when I was first getting involved, there were about 6 billion animals in the United States raised for food each year. And today there's about 10 billion. So, you know, by that metric alone, the movement has not spared a lot of animals from being raised for food, unfortunately. But I do think the treatment of many of those animals is somewhat better uh, than it was back then. It still is not good, but it is somewhat better in that you do have um, tens of millions of chickens not in battery cages anymore uh, because of many of the both corporate policies and the public policies that have been passed uh, to restrict that practice. You know, there are fewer pigs in gestation crates and the veal industry has essentially been rendered non-existent almost. It's not just that calves aren't in veal crates anymore. It's that there really is almost no veal industry at all. So, you know, there, there have been like some areas that I think are bright spots in this realm, but overall you can't escape the fact that people eat more meat and more animals today than ever before. Who were some of the, the sort of prominent voices for you know animal activism in the in the 90s is it guys like peter singer or who are you kind of inspired by uh peter singer was definitely like my this like true hero and still is frankly but i i really um think back then he was like this dominant force in terms of uh, setting the thought leadership in animal protection and, you know, there were other people who were running the actual advocacy groups as well. But in terms of like thought leadership, uh, I would say Peter Singer was like really- If people aren't familiar with Peter, how would you describe him and, and his impact in terms of some of the key things that he's contributed? Uh, sure. Well, it's hard to overstate what he's contributed, but, uh, you know, the seminal work of his was published in 1975. It's called Animal Liberation. It's a mega runaway bestseller. It's largely considered like the Bible of the animal protection movement. And- uh, uh, entertainingly, he told me one time, you know, he's written about 40 books and he told me that Animal Liberation has sold more copies than the other 39 or so combined. Gosh. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, because he's had some other big ones too. So it's not like he's just a one-hit wonder. Like, you know, The Wife You Can Save is also sold quite well. And, um, uh, practical Ethics has done well. So he, he's published a lot of really great books on lots of non-animal topics as well. Um, but the point is for the relevant to this conversation, Animal Liberation was totally seminal and it was very impactful for me as well. I, I read it after I had already become vegan, but we provided a rational case. It wasn't, it was no longer for me an emotional case where I just thought this is wrong. It actually provided a more logical philosophical approach to viewing animals as an exploited group. Mm -hmm. So I think you've kind of really laid out nicely, you know, the importance of animal activism and talking about this stuff, but also the real importance of commerce and businesses helping to transform the, the food system. In 2018, you wrote a great book yourself, Clean Meat. Thank you. And I'm interested in hearing, I guess, the journey towards writing that book. What were you doing in your life that inspired you to, to zoom in and sort of 
put a magnifying glass over this emerging uh, industry that's looking at taking, you know, animal cells and producing meat without the animal. Yeah, so, you know, Simon, I had devoted my life to trying to help animals. I'd spent a couple decades in the nonprofit world, largely working to pass laws to help protect farm animals, uh, banning practices like battery cages and gestation crates and so on. And I fully believe in that work. I think it's fantastic. But as I alluded to earlier, I began worrying that what was going to actually free animals from this ruthless exploitation that we're inflicting on them was not humane sentiment and maybe not even laws trying to get better treatment for them, although I think those are very important. But I really thought that technology, for the reasons that I noted, would be more likely to do that. And there's like this long list of categories of animal exploitation that have been rendered obsolete by new innovations, as opposed to a very short list, extremely short list of categories of animal exploitation that have been ended because of humane arguments. And I just thought, what is it that I could do to advance that space? I'm not a scientist, I didn't have some MBA, I didn't have tens of millions of dollars to invest in some you know startup or anything like that. So I just thought, you know, I can write, and I know a lot of the people in this space, and I uh, pitched a book to some publishers, and I was grateful that Simon & Schuster decided to take it. And so I really came to the belief that, you know, this was something that I could do to increase investor interest and uh, maybe get more entrepreneurs in the space and get more scientists instead of going into biomedical to go into this type of uh, biotech. And I really just wanted to write something that would explain this new industry, an industry that is producing real meat from animal cells rather than animal slaughter. And nobody had written a book about it, and it was this very foreign concept. And a lot of the media coverage was using, you know, disgusting words to deride it, you know, calling it, uh, like naming it things that, you know, like Frankenfood and whatever, when that's the opposite of what it is. And the people behind it are largely folks who are motivated because they're coming out of the animal welfare or the environmental or the public health space, and they've decided to devote their lives to doing this because they think it's the best thing that they personally can do. And so I was enthusiastic about this space for a long time, but I always thought of it as like an academic pursuit, right? So there was nearly no money going into it for a very long time. The only people working on it were academics. But in 2015, when uh, Memphis Meats got founded by Uma Valetti, this was the first startup being founded to actually commercialize this type of technology. And at that point, I thought, wow, you know, like there's really something, uh, something to be said here. And so that's when I started becoming more and more interested in actually writing about it. And after I wrote the book, I was, uh, I, I was proud of how it did. I think it, it, it was, it exceeded my expectations. And then I decided like, you know, did I want to continue to write about the people who I thought would save the world or just become one of them myself? And that's when I ended up choosing the latter. Have you seen Meet the Future? I think that's what it's called, the documentary on Memphis Meats or or on, it's on, I guess, clean meat, but, but <laughs> yeah. Memphis Meats play a big a big part of that. Yeah, I have seen it and I am in it. Okay, there you go. I actually watched that. I didn't know you were in that. So I'm like a minor supporting actor. It's, it's, it's largely a profile of Uma Valetti, but yes, that's a great film by, by Liz Marshall. Okay, very cool. So when you set out to write that book, were you already acquainted with, is it Isha Datar? Yeah. From, from She works at New Harvest and, and Uma Vledi. Were you already friends with these people or were they like, who's this who's, <laughs> who's this new guy on the scene who's doing uh, investigative journalism here? Uh, yeah, quite the opposite. I'd been friends with them for some time. Um, in fact, I'd known Uma for long before he started the company and was friends with him and his wonderful wife, Marana Wini. 
But with Isha, you know, interestingly enough, back in 2014, uh, Isha and I both ate cultivated meat for the first time together. So, you know, she had been running New Harvest for several years at that point, and I had been interested in this field for some point, so we knew each other, but neither one of us had actually eaten it. But in 2014, we were together in New York, and uh, Andrus Forgox, who is the founder and CEO, or then CEO, of a company called Modern Meadow, was making what he called beef chips. And so he was basically growing beef and desiccating them into like, they kind of look like potato chips made out of like real beef, right? And he was growing them in this lab and uh, we went to go tour his facility. And I didn't know he was going to ask us to try any, but he pulled some out. And I mean, I knew this is, this is expensive, you know? <laughs> this is, uh, you know, probably my guess at that point was like $100 per chip maybe. Um, but he offered us to try some. And, you know, at that point, I've been vegan for more than 20 years, right? And I didn't have any ethical qualms about it, but it was, you know, an odd thing to think I'm going to eat beef. And I, I wanted to be a polite guest, but I also thought, you know, this is a chance to, like, make some history here. And, like, more people have been to space than have ever eaten cultivated meat. So why not? And so Isha and I together took our first bite of cultivated meat in 2014, and uh, it was good. I really enjoyed it. If he had given me more, I would have eaten it. But since then, and in, in researching the book, I got to try um, all types of cultivated animal products from uh, beef, pork, chicken, duck, uh, fish, yogurt, and, and so on. Mm. And now the first product was on shelf in Singapore last year, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty impressively. Eat Just, the same people who do Just Egg, they are able to get the first ever governmental approval to sell cultivated meat. And they are selling it still in Singapore now. They are still selling it there. And it's uh, pretty incredible. And it looks like Qatar may be the next nation to give approval. And it looks like the U.S. may be going to there because USDA just put out a public notice for comment about labeling this food when it's on the market. I just submitted my public comments the other day. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that because the U.S. should be a leader in this space. I want to know about that, about labeling it, because there seems to be... I guess it's part of that around what you call it. There's a whole lot of different names out there, cultivated meat and clean meat and cell-based meat. Where where has the industry, I guess, landed in terms of, well, perhaps there's a name within research and then there's a name that that is customer-facing. From a customer point of view, how will this be described? Uh, well, you know, only the USDA will know what they're going to do, but there are lots of names, and amusingly, as you just pointed out, Simon, they all start with C, right? So there's queen, there's cultivated, there's culture, there's so It's like nobody can come up with a name that doesn't start with the C. I don't get it. Um, so I'll give you my own opinion, though. So, you know, queen meat pulls the best of all of them. All these polls show queen meat pulls the best. It's the best, uh, most attractive to consumers. However, there is a concern that you get more resistance from the conventional meat industry if you're calling it queen because the implication is that their meat is dirty. And, and frankly, it is dirty. I mean, so, you know, look at it. The one reason why people like to call it queen meat is not just because it's an allusion to queen energy, but also because if you think about like regular conventional meat, right, you're warned to treat it like toxic waste if it's raw. You know, in the supermarket, you're supposed to put it in a different bag. If it touches your stuff, you got to wash your stuff. Put it on your counter, you got to disinfect your counter. It touches your hands, you got to wash your hands. That's because there is fecal pathogens on it. And, you know, Campylobacter, Salmonella, E. coli, these are intestinal pathogens that can sicken us if we don't cook the crap out of the meat. Literally, you're literally cooking the crap out of the meat. And so, with queen meat, you don't need to worry as much about intestinal pathogens because there's no intestines at all. 
You know, you're only growing the meat you want. In fact, you're more likely to contaminate it with your own hands than it is to contaminate you. So I do white queen meat, but I realize that's not going to be a regulatory term. That's not what USDA is going to call it. So then you get to these other options that you were just mentioning. And uh, it's pretty clear that cultivated meat is by far the, the best sounding term for consumers. And what you call it really matters. It really, really matters. And so it, it, the polling shows that people are more or less likely to buy it based on what it is called. And cultivated meat works well. You are cultivating it. That's, it's truthful. It's accurate. You're using cultivators to cultivate it. That is exactly what's happening. Uh, cultured meat, I think, is also accurate, but a little bit confusing because there's a lot of foods that are cultured that are on the market today. Yeah, so people think of cultured as like yogurt and things like that, whereas that's not really the same type of culturing. So that's a little bit confusing. And then I think the one that it should not be is what uh, you described as cell-based. And so, you know, first of all, all meat is cell-based, right? So this doesn't actually differentiate it. Any, any time you eat an apple, it's cell-based, right? It's made of cells. But nobody wants to eat cells, right? Nobody's sitting there thinking, oh yeah, I want to eat cells. <laughs> so uh, in addition to it, just, I, I think, not differentiating and therefore really being misleading, I do think that from a consumer perspective, it just is, is not appealing. And so my understanding is that the general consensus among most of the startups in this space is that cultivated is what they're arguing for. That's what I argue for in my comments to USDA. That makes sense. It, it speaks to the processing. And if that's, you know, through surveys has been shown to be the most appealing, back to your point earlier, how do you convince consumers to pick this up off the shelf instead of it's going to come down to price, of course, their experience on flavor and what they've heard about it, but also what it's called? Yeah, I, I think you're totally right, Simon. And also just say, eventually, like there is a need to distinguish it today, but eventually it will just be meat. And so if you think about like, for example, go back to the 19th century when the only way we had to get ice was out of nature. So we had a whole industry of harvesting blocks of ice out of frozen lakes and rivers and shipping it all around the world and insulated boats for people to have ice for their ice boxes. Well, when refrigeration was invented, the barons of the ice industry, and there were barons in the ice industry, they were livid over this invention. And they railed against what they called artificial ice. And they said, it's not safe. It's not natural. It goes against God. It could sicken you. You don't want this near your kids. And, you know, you fast forward to today, and we all have artificial ice makers in our homes. We call them freezers. We don't think there's anything unnatural about it at all. And it's just ice. Because we know that in the end, it's the same product, right? Ice is ice, whether it was made in nature or made by human technology. And the same is so with meat. You know, for thousands of years, just like the only way we had to get ice was out of nature, we've only had one way to get meat out of animals' bodies. But now, technology has been invented to allow us to create meat from real animal cells without the need to raise and slaughter the whole animal. And it is just meat. Such a good analogy. What do you think people in 300 years, humanity, how do you think humanity will look back at the way that we've been producing meat? So uh, I'm going to stipulate your premise that humanity's civilization still exists in 300 years, which I think is questionable. But uh, I really do believe that the future generations, should humanity be fortunate enough to have them, will look back in revulsion at what we did. And they will think they are so glad that they no longer are reliant on this archaic, inhumane, and unsustainable technology of raising and slaughtering animals for food. And it's, it's hard for us to imagine that today because we live in this milieu where it's just normal to torment and slaughter animals. But, you know, you think about it, like 150 years ago, the debate in civil society was whether one person should be able to own another person. That was like a legitimate debate that you could be a respectable member of society and be on either side. You could be a doctor, a lawyer, a member of Congress and take either pro-slavery or anti-slavery side and still be respectable. Only 100 years ago, we were debating whether more than half the population, women, ought to even be able to vote. 
you know, 50 or 60 years ago in America, we were debating whether blacks and whites ought to be able to share the same drinking fountain, right? I mean, 20 years ago, the pro-gay policy was civil unions. Now that's the anti-gay policy because now everybody just agrees that it should be marriage. And so you can see how these social issues change and what becomes respectable one era quickly becomes totally, totally unacceptable in a new era. And so imagine like if you were to take the wrong position today in 2021 and say, actually, you know, I don't think women should vote or I do think we should have slavery or, you know, I think we should have racial segregation. You would you'd lose your job. You would lose your friends. You, like you would be completely ostracized from your social circle in most social circles, maybe not all, but in most. And in the future, I really think that people are going to say, how could we ever have subjected animals to such heinous conditions. I mean, we treat farm animals today worse than that we treat murderers and rapists. You know, we don't take murderers and rapists and put them in prison cells where they can't even turn around or where they can't lift their arms and leave them there perpetually. Yet that's what we do to huge numbers of these animals who have committed no crime except of being born to the wrong species. So I think that it's hard for us to recognize the inhumanity of what we're doing because we are so dependent on and so there's too much cognitive dissonance and so people just push it away. But once we are no longer reliant on raising and slaughtering animals for food, it'll be so much easier for people to say, oh yeah, that's horrible. I'm so glad we don't have to do that anymore. It's kind of like if you go back to the whaling analogy, you know, people today go pay money to get on boats to go look at whales, right? We have a huge whale watching industry. And 150 years ago, they would have found that baffling, right? They could not imagine people would get on a boat merely to see whales, right? Like they went on to kill whales. And, you know, it's just a complete change. And that only happened not because people looked at the science and saw that whales are so smart. It's because we were no longer lighting our homes with whale oil and so we could see these animals differently. Similarly, a lot of people today view horses as companion animals, not as labor animals, not because anything happened that we thought of horses or we learned something more about horses. It's only because we're no longer reliant on horses to transport ourselves and our goods all around. It's important to be able to zoom out like that because you can be caught in the day-to-day and think there's no progress. But as you just clearly outlined, a lot can change in a decade and in a hundred years in terms of what is deemed as acceptable and, and not acceptable. Yeah, and my presumption is that we will have memorials, memorials that help us to remember what we did to animals. And we already have some, and interestingly, like in Aspen Hill, Maryland, they have a cemetery where there's actual memorials to animals who are used in experimentation. You have some in Britain, for example, you have a memorial to animals who were used in combat and warfare and basically thanking them for their involuntary service. Uh, But I believe that we will have memorials looking back at what we did to animals and it'll serve as a stark reminder as to one of the greatest failings of our species. So I want to come to explore everything that you're doing with Better Meat, but maybe we sort of close off a little bit more on the cellular agriculture side of things. I think it's, uh, or cultivated meat, I should say. I think it's it's a very thought-provoking, you know, interesting sector for people to better understand. Uh, and you're doing a great job explaining it. There seems to be new companies popping up all the time in this space, right? I saw there's a company, have you heard of Change Foods? Yeah, I was actually just with their founders the other day. Yeah, so I've, I've spoken with them a few times. They're doing some cool stuff. And uh, there's a company now in Sydney called All G Foods. You heard of them? I don't think I have. So both of those companies, to my knowledge, and I don't, I don't know all the details, but I do know David at, at Change Foods, they're doing, and this is interesting because this is different again to meat, they're doing precision fermentation. 
did you write about that in the book? Is that something you've looked into too? Yeah, there's a chapter on precision fermentation in there. So it's helpful to remember like there's a difference between that and what's typically called cultivated meat. So cultivated meat is you take animal cells and you grow them and you make something that is just meat, right? Uh, precision fermentation is where you're making actual animal proteins without ever using even a milligram of any actual animal product. So what you're doing there is just think about it like this, Simon. So if you have baker's yeast, right? Or let's say you have brewer's yeast, right? You feed it sugar and it consumes the sugar and it produces alcohol. That's how you get beer and wine. You take baker's yeast, you feed it sugar, it produces CO2, and that's why your bread leavens. Because it's eating the sugar and the wheat and then it's basically creating CO2 and your bread rises from that yeast. So those are basically byproducts of the consumption of the sugar, right? So the yeast eats the sugar and produces this thing that you want. That's similar to what's happening at, for example, Change Foods and Perfect Day and, and other companies in that space. So what they're doing is they're taking tiny microscopic organisms and they are, instead of getting them to produce CO2 or getting them to produce alcohol, they're getting them to produce things like whey protein or egg white proteins or casein. And so what you can do is make the yeast or other types of, some of them are, are using fungi called trichoderma, where it's basically a factory and it creates a bio-identical product to, let's say, whey protein, like what Perfect Day is doing, that is the same. It's not like it just kind of tastes like whey or it functions like whey. It is whey protein. Without the cow. Right. There's never a cow involved. You don't have to do a biopsy of a cow. No stem cells. Nothing. Nothing. No, you're, you're just using I think people will find that hard to get their head around. <laughs> it is. Um, but, you know, it it's actually has a decades-long history. So you think about it like this. You know, we used to, for diabetics, they would have to inject themselves with insulin that came from pig and cattle pancreases. And that changed around 1990 because companies figured out how to get microorganisms to produce human insulin, not something that is like human insulin, but actual human insulin. And today, virtually all diabetics inject themselves with actual human insulin that is grown through precision fermentation rather than uh, taken from pig and cattle pancreases. Similarly, uh, all cheese used to, you know, to make milk curdle into cheese, you need rennet. And that typically has come historically from calf intestines. But starting in 1990, uh, Pfizer figured out a way to make chymosin, which is the enzyme that's functional in rennet, and they do it through precision fermentation. They get little microorganisms to produce chymosin, and now that's what's in cheese today. So cheese uh, used to have calf intestines in it, and now for the most part, it's made with this precision fermentation chymosin. And so the point is, like, we've been using precision fermentation to mimic animal products, including human products, for decades already. And what these companies are doing is not necessarily inventing a new technology as much as they're taking new applications. And so instead of wanting to do human insulin or rennet, they're basically doing whey and casein and so on. What an exciting area for a young scientist or microbiologist or someone who is wanting to be part of something that's making the world better, but also apply their passion, their skill set. Very much so. In fact, uh, you know, interestingly, if you look at Perfect Day, and I have a chapter on them in, in my book, Queen Meat. And so these guys had never met, they had had some online chats in video rooms about this idea of making whey protein from yeast. And they never met and they said, let's start a company together. And they were, what is this? So this is about 2014. But the point is like these guys were in their early 20s. They met by video chat. And today they've raised hundreds of millions of dollars or running this company that very well may be a unicorn by now. I don't know. But the point is that they're still in their 20s, even today, you know, like seven years later, these guys are still in their 20s running this company. And so you just think like, you know, who's going to save the world? Well, if you're out there listening right now to this podcast and you're in your early 20s and you're thinking like, maybe I want to do something, you know what? 
you might have even more reason and more experience to do a company than these guys did. And so I would just say, you know, this is a hot space right now. And uh, I wouldn't let your own mental barriers prevent you from going and doing it. And those guys have some product in the market, right? Like there's ice cream that uses the perfect day whey protein. Is that right? Yeah, there's a couple of brands. One is called Nix. The other is called Brave Robot. And they both have that. And uh, my wife is absolutely obsessed with them. She, well, not Nix. She likes Nix, but Brave Robot, mm-hmm. she's especially obsessed with. She declares it. So they're like, they're B2B. They're supplying companies who then use their ingredient. That's right. Okay. Clearly these products are not being developed to uh, appeal to vegans and vegetarians. I mean, they may well, but these are being developed as more sustainable, more ethical offerings that can go out, as you say, and be food choices that everyone is happy with with making for flavor and for meeting the right price. Where do you think these products sit in terms of veganism? Well, a few things. So if you're vegan, because you are concerned about hurting animals, you don't need to be concerned because there are no animals in the Brave Robot ice cream, right? There's not even an animal origin to it at all. However, if you're thinking that, you know, you don't want to eat whey protein because you're concerned about whatever health impacts there may be, then sure, it's not vegan. I mean, it's not a vegan food because it is actual whey protein, but it's animal free. And so actually on the ingredient deck, it says animal free whey. And so it's, you know, if you're allergic to whey or dairy, then, you know, you shouldn't eat it. It is lactose free. But as you pointed out, Simon, like the goal is not to get vegans to eat this. And vegans aren't eating animal products. So we're not, it's not that big of a deal, right? You, You want to get people who would be eating meat or eggs or dairy to eat this instead. And so, you know, when I hear from vegans, as I often do, they say, oh, I would never eat clean meat. I'd say, okay, great, don't eat it. Like, it it doesn't matter. Like, you're not eating meat. The goal isn't to get you to switch from beyond burgers to a cultivated burger, right? The goal is to get somebody who's going out to, you know, get a regular conventional slaughtered burger and switch to this instead. Same product without the animal cruelty, without the mass deforestation, the water pollution, the ocean acidification, the algal blooms, the list goes on and on. Yeah, I presume anybody listening to your podcast is already familiar with the list of ills associated with animal agriculture. But suffice it to say that this is a driving factor in deforestation, climate change, antibiotic resistance, pandemic amplification, and more. In fact, um, I I think it was Bruce Friedrich who said on your uh, recent episode that, you know, the United Nations had a report recently called Preventing the Next Pandemic. And the number one cause the UN predicts will be the cause of the next pandemic is increasing demand for animal protein. Let's go over that. Why is the intensification, the confinement of these animals increasing the chance of the next COVID-19? Sure. Well, first, I want to say I'm proud that in 2018 in Queen Mead, I actually have a section in there about pandemic risk and how animal agriculture can lead to pandemics. So I think that you know, what you're pointing out is accurate. And many people, including uh, Michael Greger, has been saying this for a while. You know, back in like 2006, I think he wrote a book called Bird Flu, A Virus of Our Own Hatching, which is entirely about how factory farming will lead to a major pandemic. That was like his main passion, yeah. right? Or yeah, one of yeah that, that's right. <laughs> yeah. He's been, you know, sounding the pandemic bugles for a long time. But, you know, look, the UN report says the number one most likely reason we're going to have another pandemic is increasing demand for animal protein. The number two cause that they predict is intensification of agriculture, meaning confining more and more animals in tinier, tinier spaces. And number three is the bushmeat trade, so killing wildlife for meat. So the numbers one, two, and three reasons the UN says we're likely to have another pandemic all relate to humanity's desire to eat meat. So we've got to do something 
we got to do something. And the reason to answer your question directly, Simon, is that when you can find tens of thousands of animals, so not for, not on bush meat, which we can talk about too, but when you can find tens of thousands of animals, let's say chickens, beak to beak in a windowless warehouse where they're living in their own feces, you are providing a fantastic opportunity for viral amplification. You're basically allowing stressed out animals to be swapping their viruses back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then all it takes is for that to jump the species. Like there's regularly all over the world, we often have bird flu outbreaks, right? Like an H5N1 uh, bird flu outbreak and, you know, millions of birds per year are being killed to, you know, prevent these from spreading. Uh, in the pork industry, we have African swine fever, which has decimated nearly half of all of the pigs on the planet right now. You just see this like massive viral risk associated with confining lots of animals together in stressful, unsanitary conditions. And all it takes is for it to jump the species barrier, go from chicken to pig to human, for example, or maybe it'll go, uh, you know, through waterfowl. We don't really know. Like there's lots of pathways that it can come to affect humans. But the current pandemic that we're in uh, seems to have probably originated in bats and seems to be stemming from our deforestation and, and incursion into their habitat. And so they're now basically having to interact with us more and they're stressed out more. And so they're shedding more viral load and so on. But it's very likely that we could have a factory farming induced pandemic. And in fact, if you look at the H1N1, the swine flu outbreak that we had back in 2009, it originated in a North Carolina pig factory. If you go back to the 1918 flu pandemic, which was sometimes called the Spanish flu, the reason it's called the Spanish flu is because Spain was the only country not censoring their press back during World War I. And so they were the first ones to report on all these deaths, but it didn't actually originate in Spain. Genetic forensics works have showed it actually originated probably on a poultry farm in Kansas. You know, the fact is that we're not doing ourselves any favors when we subject animals to these overcrowded, unsanitary conditions. It's bad for them, and it proves to be bad for us, too. And, you know, it would be one thing if we were, like, reaping all these benefits from all this animal exploitation, but we're not. We're just putting ourselves at risk, and we can do better. And so I am concerned about this for a lot of reasons, but especially because the current pandemic that we're in has a pretty low mortality rate. You know, it's about 1% or so, which, you know, compared to the regular flu is, is high, but not compared to something like we've had some bird flu strains that have been upwards of 60% uh, mortality. Now, it's unlikely that something that is so lethal would spread very far because it kills its host too quickly. But let's just say you had something that was 5 or 10% mortality instead of 1% like COVID-19 is, you know, that's when you start seeing something that's really civilizationally threatening because a lot of people aren't going to want to go to work. They're not going to get, like you're going to see truck drivers not wanting to get in their trucks and distributing food and medicine and everything. And so there is a real risk that this is merely a dress rehearsal, like the COVID pandemic is a dress rehearsal. The point you make on deforestation is also very important. You know, the confinement of, of animals is one thing in terms of being these breeding grounds and, and increasing risk of the transmission. But, you know, the largest driver of deforestation in the world is animal agriculture. 50% of forests have been cleared. And as you rightly alluded to, that's moving wild species closer to humans, closer to these factory farms. And then 
that is heightening this risk of spillover of these viruses that naturally are found in bats and, and wild birds. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I like the point that Hannah Ritchie made on your recent episode with her in which, you know, she said, look, climate change is a huge problem as far as extinction is concerned, but deforestation is the real problem. That's where you really get the biodiversity loss and the problems associated with just wholesale extinction of lots of species. And deforestation is largely caused by the desire to either provide grazing land for farm animals or cropland to grow crops for farm animals. You know, what Hannah said was really telling. She said 4% of the soy that is grown is for like meat substitutes, basically, and, and tofu and tempeh and so on. Nearly all of it is either for oil or for uh, farm animal feed. And that is just really, really depressing. And I write about this in my book, how the soy industry is very aware of this. Like, you know, they don't want you to switch from beef to tofu, right? It sounds ironic because, you know, you would think, oh, well, tofu is made of soy, but those cows are more made out of soy. So, you know, they have, uh, they talk about in their own publications how they need to protect animal agriculture because that's their biggest customer. And if we want to save our forests, we're going to have to raise fewer animals. That's just all there is to it. And, you know, Hannah said in that episode as well, it speaks to deforestation being so important is the most important thing when it comes to agriculture to, to helping heal the planet is creating more calories from less land. Yeah. Well, that's all the more reason why we should be using fermentation, because if you look at, for example, what companies like the Betamico and others in the fermentation space are, you know, we're using minuscule, minuscule amounts of land in order to produce a lot of food. And I think that that's why in the future, we're really going to have a fermentation-fueled future where, you know, of course, growing peas to make plant-based meat uses way less land than raising animals. But if we can go to the microbial level, it actually, you really get a lot of gains there. So, you know, if you think about it, one of the reasons why it takes such a short amount of time for us to make a lot of protein is because we're dealing with microbes, right? So think about it like biologically, the larger the organism, generally speaking, the longer it takes to replicate. So an elephant takes a long time to make more elephants. Human takes less time. Chicken takes even less time to make more chickens than rats and mice, even less time. But when you get down to the microscopic level, it's like rapid replication, right? So the, the feed ratio is better. Yeah, and you just get it much quicker with much with many fewer inputs. Less land, fewer inputs, and so on. And so when you're running a fermentation, uh, at least in our case, you know, we finish it in hours. You know, we're not waiting for weeks or months for the chicken or the pig or the cow to grow up. You know, we're doing this thing in hours. Okay, so... I want to dive into Sacramento. Ah, great. You mentioned before you decided, you know, am I going to continue writing about this or go into business and, and actively be a part of the industry and the solution? Walk me through the thought process then and how you, obviously you were thinking about cultivated meat, you probably thought about plant-based meat. I believe you may have even gone down that path initially and then you arrive at Mycoprotein and you set up this big facility in Sacramento. Walk me through the initial stages of that concept, you know, deciding you're going to start a business. How did all that look? Yeah, I was very confident that I was going to uh, start a company in the space. Uh, at the same time, I wasn't sure exactly what it was going to do. I'm very concerned about the price problems of plant-based meat that even today with all the investment in it, it's still sold at, at much more than the cost of conventional meat. And 
it's hard to see how you get down to uh, price parity with conventional. So what's meat. a what's a Beyond Burger cost per patty? Um, you know, the other day in Safeway, my wife and I actually got them. I think for five ninety nine for two patties, and so that's like twelve bucks a pound. Whereas you know, it's much that's you know much much more than what conventional beef patties. People probably uh, are thinking if it's using less resources, you know, less inputs. Why why is it more expensive? Uh, largely because the meat industry has enormous scale, enormous mechanization, lavish subsidies, and uh, a lot of governmental support, and even independent of subsidies. And they have uh, very few regulations on in terms of what they can do, right? They don't have almost any regulations on how they can treat animals. You know, you have an industry that has enjoyed billions of dollars of government research for decades. I mean, just huge amounts of government research going into this to help this industry to get more efficient to you know, get chickens that weigh more eggs, to get cows who grow a bit more beef, right? This is like what they've done. So like if you were starting a, an egg farm, you know, the Hill egg farm, and, and you're using 1900, uh, the year 1900 chickens, you might only get a few dozen eggs per chicken per year. You do the Hill egg farm using a 2021 strain of chicken, you're getting about 300 eggs per chicken. And a lot of that just has to do with a, a lot of government and public university extension research dollars going to create more efficient animals. We, though, in the plant and fungi-based world are dealing with, you know, crops or fungi that just haven't been optimized for these purposes. I mean, in the fungi world, we're using wild fungi. You know, they haven't been selectively bred for generations like chickens and pigs have to grow really fast or do any of, lay lots of eggs or anything. So we're, you know, it's only going to get better from here, right? Like this is the worst that it'll be. Beyond Meat projects that by 2025, they think there'll be a price parity with conventional beef. That's great. That's awesome. But, you know, chicken is a lot cheaper than beef and we need to get there too. Chickens are the vast majority of the animals going into slaughter plants. So we got to do a lot. Um, and the fact that uh, Beyond Meat has that goal within the next few years to get there is wonderful, but it just shows how hard this is to do. Because even they, who have way more money than most people in this space do, see this as this really vexing problem. I see a pathway, though, using fungi fermentation to actually do this much faster. Our products today are sold about for the price of beef right now. And at scale, we're not even anywhere near scale yet, but at scale, it'll be cheaper than chicken. So that's what our projections show, and that's why I'm, I'm going down this route. Even since the inception of the Better Meat Co., we have thought, how can we get the cheapest product? And you're right, we did initially start working with plant proteins. We still use them for some products, but it became clear to me that for us, there just wasn't a pathway to price parity here anytime in the near future. And so that's why at the very close to the beginning of the company, we started exploring mycelium as a pathway to getting products that are not only more meat-like in their nature, but also that are going to be eventually cheaper than chicken. Talk me through, I guess, the history of that mycelium, uh -huh. using it to produce food. I mean, it's a wild concept, right? Like, how do you arrive at that position and understand where to start? Are there mycelium experts out there that yeah. that you were able to consult with? Uh, yeah, they call themselves mycologists. And uh, yeah, there are. And so it's an expensive game to be in. You know, you're talking here about, um, you know, buying steel, right? Like stainless steel to make fermenters. It's not cheap to do like that. Like a big brewery. Yeah. I saw a photo. Yeah, yeah. yeah it is just like a brewery. Um, but we're brewing meat instead of, instead of beer. This is like a 13,000 foot operation or something like that? Uh, right? Yeah, yeah. It's about 13,000 square feet uh, is our operation. But, you know, what 
what you can do there is essentially look to what's been done, right? So we're not the first people who had the idea to, you know, use mycelium for food, right? It's been going on for decades. So the real pioneers in this space are the company Corn, Q-U-O-R-N in Britain. And, you know, back, I think it was in the 70s or maybe even in the 60s, I can't remember, but a long time ago, they basically discovered this soil microbe, it's called Fusarium venenatum, that they figured out that you can uh, subject it to a type of fermentation that makes a high-protein product. With That's it. fungi. It is fungi, yes. Yeah, And so they realized it, you know, it doesn't necessarily taste like meat, but that it does create a high-protein food that if you process it in certain ways will have a meat-like texture in some ways. You explained earlier, you feed potatoes and right. a type of uh, grain. Yeah, that's right. So they, yeah, yeah, they're basically feeding sugar. So different inputs. Yeah, it's different inputs, but and a different species altogether. Um, so in fact, in fact, a different genus altogether. So that's really one of the more interesting things that's happening now. So corn has created this very successful brand. You know, these guys, uh, they created, they, t- they took a microbe that no human had ever eaten and they created a successful business making alt meat products that no, they don't really taste like meat per se, or at least like beef in my view, but they taste good. I like eating them. I mean, they're like a novel category of food to me and I, I really enjoy eating them. And the texture is pretty good. Yeah, I, I think it is. I, I think it is. And they, they've, to their credit, they've created a number of vegan products now. For a while, they only had products that were, had egg white binders in them and now they have vegan products. That's awesome. But, you know, they have to do some things to get it to that state. So they have to freeze it. They've got to have an RNA kill step. There's there's post-harvest processing things they have to do. But they're using that species. So then the question is, just like you have pea, wheat, and soy, and other plants that are out there vying to be contenders in this space, are there other fungi species that can be utilized? And so that's where we have pioneered this method of choosing other fungi that actually have a far more meat-like texture that don't require freezing and all these other things you have to do. So that's straight out of the fermenter. After you remove water, you really do have something that has the texture of meat in it. And that, that has been one of the key things that has led to where we are today. So on that, what species are you using? Is it one species, two, or is that private IP? <laughs> and uh like, yeah, this seems like an obvious question, but where do you get those microbes from? Yeah, sure. So, you know, if you were to look up better Mico patents, what you'd see is that we like to use a, a genus that's called Neurospora. And unlike what corn is doing, where their species is novel to the human diet, Neurospora has actually been consumed for centuries safely by humanity. So if you go to Indonesia today, people are eating Neurospora all the time in the form of what's called Oncom, that's O-N-C-O-M. And so it's kind of like tempeh, except it's made instead of fermenting soybeans with a rhizopus, which is a, a fungi, you're basically fermenting peanuts with Neurospora, and you create a cake that's kind of like tempeh, but made out of peanuts, and it's called ancham. And there's lots of cultures around the world that use the same genus to make uh, really cool foods, either through fermentation or even drinks and so on. So this is a, a, a genus that has a centuries-long history of safe consumption, but it hasn't really been used that much for meat substitutes per se. And so what we're doing is basically taking that type of a fungi and subjecting it to a fermentation with very specific parameters that causes it to grow quickly, accumulate a lot of protein, and create a meat-like texture. So when you start with potatoes, which are about 1% protein, within hours you now have a product that really looks like meat that is 45% protein. And so it's creating like what we're really good at doing or what our microbes are really good at doing is converting starchy foods into high-protein foods. And so you create this kind of like lower nutrition food and create a much higher nutrition food that has a complete amino acid profile and a PDK score of 0.96. For those of you not familiar, if you're not a nutritionist like Simon, it's basically about the digestibility of the protein. So 1.0 is the highest that you can be, and this is a 0.96. So 
pretty much as good as you can get almost. The mycoprotein that corn uses is slightly different. There's some clinical data on the stuff that they're using anyway that's showing you know great results in, in sort of comparability to animal protein in terms of muscle protein synthesis and strength. Yeah, yeah. People, I, I read that study um, as well. In fact, I think there's more than one, but that are showing that eating mycoprotein, uh, generally speaking, helps you get your gains. You would consider this a whole food? It, it is a whole food. We're not fractionating it. We're not isolating it. We're not removing the fiber that's in there. So, you know, one of the points that you've made that I uh, couldn't be in more concert with that we were talking about is this fiber issue, right? Like, I, I have to keep on harping on it because. This is like the key thing that people are deficient in, widespread, widespread. And in your book, you talk about how I think it was something like 28 to 38 grams is the RDA in Australia. It's even lower in the United States. It's like 25. But the average person is getting like 12, right. 15. Exactly, exactly. So in the US, it's even lower RDA and we still can't meet it. Uh, so, you know, look, meat does not have fiber, right? And it's important that, that that RDA is just for regular bowel movements. For chronic disease avoidance, it's higher. And yeah, and, and, you know, Michael Greger talks about this, how if you look at hunter-gatherer tribes, like they're getting, you know, 75 to 100 grams a day because they're eating so much plant material, so much fibrous material. My uh, paleo friends often forget that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. It's very convenient, very convenient. People love good news about bad habits. You mean I can just eat bacon and eggs and that's it? Um, but yeah, so... You need fiber and meat does not have it. And the reason is because animals have skeletons, right? So animals have skeletons that hold us up. Plants don't have skeletons. They only have fiber. That's what holds them up. That's why plants and fungi have fibers. It's like their skeletal structure and it holds them up. So you're not going to get any fiber in the meat that you're eating. But if you eat the type of meat that's made from mycoprotein, you are going to get fiber because you're going to get that protein that you want, but the fiber that you need associated with it because it's a whole food that is coming from the fungi kingdom. So you're going to get that good protein, but you also get that fiber. You made it sound very easy before. I just feed the microbes, <laughs> and potato and grains, and then it produces all of this protein. But I want to understand a little bit more of the frustrations and the pain in setting up this business because I can imagine that there was a lot of troubleshooting and trial and error. Can you give a bit of a behind the scenes look into, I mean, how old's the company now? Three years? Three and a half years. Okay. So how long did it take for you to, once you identified a microbe, to, to produce something that was edible? Um, well, it's edible on its own. And if you run the fermentation and if you can run a contamination-free fermentation, which is, you know, not as easy as it sounds, it's edible. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have a product that's good or economical, right? Like you're looking for a few things, at least we are looking for a few things, something that'll grow fast, that accumulates a lot of protein, and that has the texture of meat. And the parameters in which you run your fermentation control those types of metrics. And so in the same way that, you know, go back to like the Hill chicken farm, you could maybe, you had 10,000 chickens, you separate them into pens and you feed them different Sounds things. Sounds like a nightmare, <laughs> the Hill chicken <laughs> yeah. farm. I don't know how successful it would be, but, well, you know, you, you basically have all these pens and you're feeding them different things. Like some are eating corn, some are eating soy, some are eating half corn and half soy. Some of them are eating 75, 25. And you see... What does this do, right? Which group grows the biggest and the fastest and which group has the best, uh, you know, texture and so on, right? So that's what you're doing here. And so you're running literally thousands of experiments to figure out what are the parameters of the fermentation that you want in order to actually get a product that is economical and tastes good. So it, it's not as easy as just saying, oh, you know, just feed some potatoes to some microbes and you got it. 
uh, you know, I mean, our staff is, you know, made up of people who are, you know, PhD scientists and microbiologists and so on. It's optimized for efficiency. Yeah, efficiency, protein accumulation, uh, taste, texture, color. Um, you know, these are all things that you can vary in the fermentation depending on the way that you run it. So playing devil's advocate here for a second, when something sounds too good to be true, people are, are left thinking, what's the, what's the blind spot? What are we missing here? And I'm sure you're aware of whatever the, the strengths and limitations are of the model, but are there any potential downsides to doing this or risks or, you know, what have you been able to sort of identify and evaluate? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I agree with you. Um, you know, I'm not going to tell you that uh, one drop of our mycelium can diagnose any disease overnight for you, but I, I will tell you that it seems like magic, but it's not magic, it's just science. And like anything, there are pros and cons. And the pros here are so dramatic when you compare it to raising animals for food that it's almost hard to even bring up the cons. But it's not perfect, right? Like you still have to have inputs, right? So we're still using potatoes. And so what we do a lot of the times is use potato processing byproducts, right? So if you think about like, you know, the potato industry, there's lots of byproducts from their processing plants. And if you could run on those and valorize and upcycle their potato byproducts, you could then have essentially, you know, almost no agricultural inputs that you're putting into it because you don't need to grow new fields of potatoes. Can you define upcycle if someone's hearing that for the first time? Sure. So lots of foods get wasted and they either get thrown out or they get diverted into animal feed or whatever. And you can upcycle them, meaning that you can repurpose them and use them for things that have more value than they would have otherwise gone to. And so, for example, in the potato industry, there are lots of things. So think about all the French fries that are miscut, right? Or think about potatoes that are the wrong size. Or think about water in that process that might have starch remaining in it that just gets flushed down the drain. All of those have nutrients that they may not have much use in the world of, you know, human consumption typically. But you know who doesn't care? Our microbes. They don't care. They're happy to eat that starch. They love it. And so, you know, we try to run our fermentations on potato byproducts so that we can get an even smaller footprint on the planet. Now, keep in mind, even if we were just buying potatoes on the market, it's still a much, much smaller uh, footprint. You know, uh, a potato, I think, is about 30 or so gallons to produce a pound of potatoes, whereas, you know, beef, it's, it's hundreds, right? So you're talking uh, of water, that is. Um, so you're talking about like big efficiencies no matter what you're doing. However, you know, our goal is to uh, upcycle and just use those products. I want to ask you a question that is pertaining to quite a controversial area when it comes to inputs. Genetically modified organisms versus non-GMO and the effect, I guess, more from an environmental point of view, whether that's something that you consider uh, with regards to your inputs. Uh, so we don't use genetically modified organisms at the Better Meat Co. However, it's not because I personally have some opposition to it, right? Like there's just, first of all, you know, potatoes are uh, typically not GM. Um, and we haven't genetically modified our fungi either. So it's not what we're using. However, I will just put in my own personal view here, which is that a lot of the times people who are well-meaning environmentalists and others uh, have a knee-jerk reaction on this issue. And they just believe that, you know, it seems quote unquote unnatural to them. And so they oppose it. I think the actual evidence is far more nuanced than that. And so if you look, for example, like first of all, organic does not mean no pesticides, right? It just means no synthetic pesticides. And oftentimes uh, synthetic pesticides can actually be less toxic than organic pesticides. 
And so it doesn't mean like if you're eating organic because you want pesticide free, that's not what it means. Also, you know, typically speaking, organic just takes a lot more land because you get less yield per acre. Uh, you often have tilling, which releases a lot of carbon into the atmosphere and, and disrupts the soil, whereas for a lot of the GM, you don't have tilling. So I'm not saying that you know, GM is necessarily better than organic. I am just saying that it's far more nuanced than just thinking that GM is somehow a horrible technology that should never be used. I think of it like a knife, that you know, a knife can be used to you know, cut bread or to kill somebody. And you can use GM for really bad purposes, but it doesn't mean you'd throw the whole baby out with the bathwater because there are certain things that we could do that would be hugely environmentally beneficial if we could use it. Also, I mean, I just think it's funny that people who are opposed to GM typically don't have any problem with the fact that mutagenesis is routinely used for quote unquote natural selection of plants where we're just zapping them, trying to randomly uh, you know, mutate the genes to try to get different characteristics. Or that, you know, we love foods like seedless watermelon. Like, is there anything less natural than a seedless watermelon? And I mean, I eat seedless watermelon. I love it. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, this isn't a product that, you know, is coming from nature here. So, uh, you know, most of the foods that we're eating are the product of high science. High science. Not, not just like, you know, some person in the backyard, you know, selecting different plants and breeding them together, but really high science. And many people are quite happy to enjoy the seedless watermelons and all the other things. You know, you think about bananas today, they look nothing like the bananas of hundreds of years ago, which were tiny and had huge seeds in them. And people like eating bananas today because they are, they're just more convenient and tastier for us. So in the end, I think that, you know, genetic modification should not just be vilified as is, that there are some good uses of it. And in general, we should be open to food technology, which reduces humanity's footprint on the planet because our biggest footprint is coming from agriculture and we need to do anything that we can to use less land and less water. Do you think that despite the nuance, I mean, the public perception of, of GM now is just so bad and, and you see, you know, every product has non-GMO on the front of it and there is a lot of very anti-GM rhetoric out there. Is that even possible to turn around? Can we turn around from that or is it just too far gone in terms of brand damaging? I don't think it's too far because still, while you're right, there are a lot of products marketed with GM-free uh, labels. And still, the vast majority of corn and soy grown is GM, so people are eating it. You know, of course, a lot of that's going to farm animals and it's going to like ethanol production and so on. But for the most part, I think a lot of people are eating it. So uh, it's kind of one of those things where people say one thing, like if you were to poll people about it, they would say one thing. But then when they're actually acting as consumers, they act differently. I'll give you an example. There was a study, a poll of American consumers that found 80 percent, 80 percent of American consumers want mandatory labels on foods containing DNA. And of course, every food you ever eat contains DNA, right? Like there's not a food you ever eat that doesn't contain DNA, maybe except salt, actually. Salt is like the one exception where it's, there's no DNA in it. But every other food you ever eat has DNA. And there is just like a lack of familiarity, I think, with some of the science about food and, and biology in general that leads to this kind of neophobia, like this fear of new things. And But I also think, like you said, there's this idea there's no pesticides used on organic, whereas when you hear of GM, I think many people initially immediately think about glyphosate. Yeah, I, I think you're right, and I think it's a, a great example of an area where it's possible that maybe this wasn't a good use. 
I'm not versed well enough to know on this particular issue. I know there's a lot of concerns that people raise about it. I, I don't really know enough about it, honestly. I'd like to learn more about it. So if somebody wants to send me more, please email me. Um, you can get in touch with me through bettermeat.co. But I'll tell you, that doesn't mean that it should never be used. You know, there's all types of examples of uh, of good uses of it, like from papayas in Hawaii and so on, where there, there wouldn't be a papaya industry anymore. You know, do, do you want to eat papayas? I mean, if so... You know, anybody who is getting them more, more than likely is getting a GM papaya and we wouldn't have them without it. So often it's, we create a false dichotomy. You know, if it's GM, it's going to be glyphosate and there's one way of doing GM. But what I'm hearing from you is that there is more nuance. And even though you, you say you don't have all of the answers, it is a very real possibility. If today we said, let's get rid of GM, click the fingers, we would require a lot more land, which could theoretically result in more deforestation. I think that that's true. However, uh, there would be one caveat that I would offer. Most GM crops are being fed to farm animals. So if we wanted to really get rid of GM, the best thing that you can do is eat less meat. Because if you want to reduce the number of acres that are planted with GM crops, eat less meat. That's really what it comes down to. Like, don't worry as much about the plants that you're eating. Worry about the meat because that's where, like, nearly all of the GM crops are going. Currently, 75% of land use for agriculture is animal agriculture. That's only giving us, like, 18% of our calories. So if we were to reduce that, that frees up a lot of land to then use more natural organic methods of farming that do take up more room. You could do that. Um, and you could also rewild it and allow nature to go back and give some of the planet back to the other species on this planet with whom we share it. You know, I think, you know, we have this attitude that the whole planet should be available for our use, for this one species use. And I think maybe it'd be better to recognize that maybe the other animals on this planet, you know, don't exist for us. They exist with us and we ought to give them some parts of the planet for themselves too. And in doing that, I think people will immediately think about farmers who perhaps own land and it's not about putting them out of an income, but finding a way, I guess, through a new approach to food system and putting some form of value on nature and incentivizing these farmers financially to do exactly what you said, which is to look at their land, not as agriculture, but to look at it as a, a precious ally for us in terms of fighting climate change, but also a home to all of these other species. I, I totally agree with what you're saying and would go even further. If you look at a lot of the grazing, the lot of the grazing land in the United States, it's not owned by these ranchers. It's federally publicly owned land that we lease to ranchers at pennies on the dollar for what the land is worth for them to have their cattle grazing on our land. And they decimate wildlife there they don't want bison on it because it's competition for the grass. They don't want predators on it because it's, they're fearful they'll kill the calves. Um, why should we have all of this public land out in the west of the United States used for this private industry to produce cheap meat? I, I just don't get it. Have you seen uh, Rewilding a Mountain? I haven't. Tell me about it. It's a documentary set here in, in, in America. It's a rewilding project followed for around 20 to 25 years my memory serves me correctly, where they, an area that was, had quite intensive grazing and they removed all livestock 
and monitored over the 20, 25 years the change in biodiversity. And it, it's a very beautiful story to watch. My guess is like native wildlife return. Oh, it was, you know, they were, they were monitoring you know, insects and birds and all of these migrant birds that weren't coming all of a sudden started coming back. And, uh, you know, the, there, was, there was more water flowing through the creeks. And it's a beautiful example of regeneration. Often we hear of regenerative agriculture, but that is, that's assuming that we have to produce food through that process. But there's also just regeneration, uh, as you say, where we're putting aside land. Yeah, and, and I'm not the only one to say this, of course. I know uh, Paul Hawken was talking about this on Rich Roll's latest episode with him. And I think, you know, regeneration as a concept need not be talking about, hey, how can we, you know, create better soil to grow more things for humans? But how can we allow the planet to heal? Like we have caused a lot of problems and we can allow it to heal. Like a lot of it is just in that case can be us getting out of the way, like what you're talking about on this mountain. Some of it can be us helping facilitate it too, actually, not just getting out of the way, but even facilitating it by uh, doing things like certain kinds of plantings and certain types of uh, plants and fungi that can be helpful for remediation and so on. And bring that predator-prey relationship back through uh, trophic rewilding. Have you seen that? I have, yeah. I think it's like a YouTube video about the wolves in, in Yellowstone, the reintroduction. Yeah, yeah, I have seen that. It's incredible when you bring back that relationship that naturally exists, the the flow-on effect that that has. Yeah, uh, I, I totally agree with you. And there's a, a new book out by a guy, a journalist for the Financial Times. His name is Henry Mance, and it's called How to Love Animals in a Human-Dominated World. And uh, he basically, uh, from a financial journalism perspective, makes prescriptions on what would make the economy work better for animals. And one of the key things that he talks about is basically, you know, there is a tension between more owned animals and more free-living animals. And there is a zero-sum game between them that if you have more and more owned animals, you'll have like human-owned animals, like farm animals and so on, you'll have fewer wild free-living animals. And what we need is to reduce the number of owned animals and so that you can allow the free-living animals to repopulate the world. I saw a statistic that speaks to that recently, and it looked at all of the mammals on Earth, including humans, and only 4% of those are wild animals. Um, yeah, you know, Yuval Harari, the author of Sapiens, writes about this, um, and, and he wrote the foreword for my book, Queen Mead, and he writes about this topic. And I don't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but if you look at a biomass basis, like nearly all of the uh, mammals on the planet by volume, uh, not necessarily by individual, but by pounds or kilos for the Aussies listening in, are basically humans and, and livestock. It's unbelievable, actually. Back to uh, your fermentation process and better understanding what you guys are doing. You're using these fungi, the microbes, you're feeding these, the potato and the sorghum, and this protein comes out the other side. Your business model is a, a B2B. So how are you kind of packaging this up to supply to other companies? Is it as a raw material, that steak that I tried, was that a finished product from you or is that a finished product from another brand? Um, it's a finished product from us, but we only make those type of finished products to demonstrate the versatility of the ingredient. So the Better Miko is a B2B ingredients company. We will sell to you know, other food producers that want to make a meat-like experience without animals. And so we make products to show them what you can do with our ingredients. So a steak is one of them. If somebody wants to make their steak that's powered by our mycoprotein, that's awesome. We'd love to provide it for them. Uh, but it's not just steak. You can do chicken, you can do crab, you can do fish. 
Um, we have uh, applications that we can show any company how to use this mycelium to make an awesome meat substitute. And so some of the, the companies that you sell to, they are mixing this in with animal products, right? Yeah. I think some people listening to that will think that's that's an interesting concept, right? <laughs> that's, a, that's a kind adjective that I think they would say, actually. Yeah. Well, I mean, when I think about it, I think it makes sense. It's interesting. I can hear people also thinking, wow, that's weird. They're selling two meat companies. But talk me through the, the sort of thought process there and, and what these companies are doing. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, Simon, let me give you a thought experiment. So in the United States, if you go to Burger King, you can get an Impossible Whopper or you can get a conventional Whopper. And that's awesome. That's totally historic. My hat is off to Impossible for getting that done. It's amazing, actually. But, you know, the best-selling stores at Burger King right now, at least according to news articles, is about 2% of the burger sales are Impossible Whoppers. So imagine then if in addition to offering the Impossible Whopper, they also took the conventional Whopper and they made it 50% plant-based and 50% regular beef. Now, instead of a 2% reduction in demand for beef, you have more than 50% reduction without getting anybody to switch. That is the power of hybridization, that you can actually get far more gains for animal welfare and sustainability and public health than you do just by offering a vegan alternative that you hope people will switch to. And so, you know, some people, especially vegans, look at this and they say, oh, that, you know, if they made a half and half burger, that's just a half step. But it's not true. It actually does far more for animals. Um, it's kind of like, imagine um, if you look at like fuel efficiency, like, you know, about one or 2% of the vehicles in the United States are all electric. So imagine if you had a choice between, let's say, doubling that number or improving fuel efficiency for the 98% of cars that still use gas by 10 miles per gallon. Like you end up reducing way more fossil fuel use if you do the latter. Comes back to absolute numbers. Exactly, exactly. And so the problem is that vegans want something that they will like, right? And I get it. I, I, I like getting the Impossible Whopper also. But what's popular with vegans doesn't necessarily always correlate with what's good for animals or even what's better. Now, these are not exclusive strategies, right? You can do both. You can offer the Impossible Whopper and blend the conventional. But we should be working to get the meat companies to be using fewer animals. And so if we can help the meat companies to hybridize their products by offering them plant or fungi proteins to put into their meat so that they will be selling way fewer animals, that's a big win. Yeah, I think about something similar if I think about just people changing their diet in general if you can shift a huge amount of the population to a diet that's more plant-based, then is the absolute effect in terms of planetary health and animal welfare superior than speaking to a very, very small percentage of people that can adopt the perfect diet? Dude, I'm so with you. And uh, that's what I really liked in, in your book, talking about plant-predominant diet, right? So if you, if you take the metric that you were saying, like let's say 80% of your food is coming from plant-based sources, or fungi-based. Um, so, <laughs> I need to change you know, the title. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I'll put it. I'll put some next brackets edition. in. Next, next edition. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I really think that you know that is a more palatable message that ends up reducing more meat demand. Like you know, I always tell people, you know, you should applaud yourself for doing what you can do at that moment. So if you're doing a meatless Monday today, that's awesome. You're probably going to then think, hey, I'm the type of person who likes meatless Monday. Maybe I'll try out a tofu Tuesday. Or if you're doing like what Mark Bittman, the cookbook author does, where he says, you know, vegan before 6 p.m. and after 6 p.m. he eats whatever he wants, it's a big step in the right direction. Or you can do what I do, which is vegan before 6 p.m. and vegan after 6 p.m. So, you know, you can do the whole hog or maybe no hog and uh, create, a, you know, just become vegan. That's great. But 
we shouldn't presume that it's all or nothing. Like you don't want to let perfection become the enemy of the good and we should be celebrating progress. I, I had one time I was giving a speech and there's a, a woman in the audience who said, you know, I could totally be a vegetarian, but I just can't say no to my grandmother's Thanksgiving turkey. And that was her reason why she's not vegetarian. And I said, well, then eat the turkey. Like be a vegetarian 364 days a year. And then that one day a year, if you really want to make your grandmother happy, you do it. But that doesn't mean that you should go eat meat every other day of the year because one day you're going to, you know, break that rule. Like this isn't a religion. It's not puritanical. You know, like this isn't like there's like some tablet with commandments on it here. This isn't a a religion. In in fact, uh, honestly, uh, some of these religious folks are more lenient uh, than I think vegans are. So, you know, you think about like, um, I don't know, let's say somebody says to you, well, you know, I'm a a Christian. You say, okay, cool. So you follow all the rules in the Bible and say, well, no, not all of them, but you know, I I get the gist of it. I'm like, okay, so at least the 10 commandments. Oh yeah, definitely 10 commandments. Like, so cool. So you keep the Sabbath holy, right? And they're like, well, I, you know, like, well, that's one of the Ten Commandments. But nobody's going to say, oh, you're not a Christian, right? Like, maybe some fundamentalists will, but most Christians will not say, you're not a Christian if you don't keep all Ten Commandments, even though it's literally the Ten Commandments. And then vegans will say, oh, if you, you know, you mess up one day a year, you know, you're excommunicated. I mean, think about that. Like, that is a, a, a puritanical place to be that is not conducive to longevity and sustainability. Uh, you know, people don't want to be a part of that. That's frightening, right? You feel you're more worried about being judged, being judged and excoriated. Yeah, I mean, being judged is bad enough, but uh, you know, being uh, you know publicly crusaded against, yeah, for sure. So, how's it going? How is business in terms of supplying all of these various companies? What's the feedback like from the market, both from the companies selling products that are 100% microprotein and then also the ones that are doing the sort of more hybrid offering? So, you know, we finished construction of our microprotein fermentation facility in Sacramento in June. And we announced it and we have been flooded. I need to come up and see that. We welcome you. Come on up, Simon. We'd roll out the red carpet for you, give you a tour and tasting. I call it the Willy Wonka of meat. So you come in and it's like a (laughs) real fun time. Count me in. Great. So... We have been flooded with demand way more than we can supply. I mean, uh, by orders of magnitude, honestly. Uh, we, we just can't produce enough. So in fermentation, there are really four scales. There's bench, pilot, demonstration, and full scale. We are at that third level right now. We're at demonstration. We've built a demonstration plant. We can produce thousands of pounds a month, but we can't produce millions. And that's what we need to do. Like you want to really start making a difference in the world, you've got to get to scale. And so right now we are in the process of designing our full scale plant that will be about 15 times bigger than what we have built in Sacramento. And then we will have a river of our microprotein flowing into the industry, helping these big food companies use fewer animals, whether they're making totally animal-free or hybridized products. So right now, like what we have is not really designed to be a production facility. I mean, we run a lot of R&D. We're basically trying to figure out what are the best ways to run fermentations of this size because you know it doesn't always translate from the bench scale to these larger scales. You need to figure out like what, what the differences are. But we're already in the process of building it. So what does that look like in terms of timeline and uh, from a company growth point of view? How many staff do you have now to get you where you want to go? How much do you have to grow? Yeah, so we're a small team. We have 16 employees and we're a small team though that's doing really big things. In fact, we've created the largest biomass microprotein fermentation facility on the planet outside of corn. Corn is the biggest by far, many times bigger than us, many, many times bigger. Um, But uh, this is the second biggest and we're doing some really great things here. We have a really talented team who's driving this company 
company forward. And we've done it for very little money. So, you know, to answer your question, we've raised about $12 million to date in investment. And that may sound a lot to the uninitiated, but in reality, it's very little compared to what's needed. So, you know, to build a full-scale plant, you need many times more than that. And we're going to go out and raise that money and do it and build something where we're going to have a fermenter the size of an office building. And we're going to create lots of those. We're going to create fermenters the sizes of office buildings all around the world. And we're going to have uh, an entirely new category of animal-free meat that people can enjoy. So rather than just relying on soy, pea, and wheat, you'll have mycoprotein that you can use. And all of these startups that are coming into the space can create new products with cool ingredients that aren't the same as what everybody else has. And I think that is going to be really helpful to creating not just more new and novel, interesting culinary experiences, but creating a more sustainable and even healthier animal-free meat industry. And so your vision is to stay as a B2B a supplier of this raw ingredient. Yeah, you know, um, business plans rarely survive first contact with reality. But so far, three and a half years in, we are still a B2B ingredients company and, and we don't have plans to change that. We like being B2B because I think we can have a bigger impact, honestly. By working with big food companies to change what they are doing, I think we can have a much bigger impact than trying to compete against them. In terms of barriers to grow and to succeed, and perhaps we zoom out a little bit and include clean meat in this, you know, I'm wondering, this is, I want to say disrupting, but then when, you know, when you think about the increased demand for protein and the ability of the current system to be able to supply that is just not there. So I'm not sure whether it is at this current moment seen as purely disrupting and, and taking sales away from traditional animal agriculture, but I'd love to hear from you in terms of whether there's been any kickback from within the industry about these emerging sectors that are providing you know, meat-like products. Right, yeah. So you know, it's interesting you mentioned this, Simon, because there is some division within the meat industry on this. There's a lot of people in the meat industry who think of this type of animal-free meat as a supplement to what they are doing, right? We got to create more protein for the future, and this is a way to do it because you can only produce so many more animals. Like we might be at like peak animal agriculture, maybe. However, there are others in the meat industry, like the CEO of Cargill, who recently said that he actually thinks this is going to cannibalize their core animal business. And, and he's invested into it, right? That's right. Yeah, Cargo has invested in a number of these animal-free protein companies. And so I don't know who will be right. Of course, I hope he's right. I hope the CEO of Cargo is right. And what I do think is that it's kind of like the film wars. So if you go back like to the 90s, you had Canon and you had Kodak, and they're vying for supremacy in the film market. They both knew about digital, but Canon was embracing it, whereas Kodak was concerned it was going to cannibalize its core business of negatives and print photos and all the chemicals and the dark rooms and everything else that Kodak was making. And so Kodak didn't pursue digital because they were afraid it was going to cannibalize their core business, whereas Canon did. And we all know what happened in the end. So Kodak went bankrupt and Canon is now the largest manufacturer of digital cameras on the planet. But they still sell us the same thing. It's just a way to capture our memories, right? Like digital photos still capture our memories just like a print photo does, but it's just way more efficient and convenient, which is why we all in instantly switched to it almost. Like over a couple decades, you know, you went from like 99% print to 99% of photos being taken being digital. And that, I think, is what's going to happen in the meat industry, that you're going to have some meat industry players who are more like Kodak, and they're afraid that it's going to cannibalize, and so they don't really pursue it. And you're going to have some that are more like Canon, and they are going to pursue it, even thinking that this could cannibalize because they think it's going to be the way of the future. And if we further zoom back out, and you kind of spoke to, I, I think, what could happen if we fail to act, 
What does the world look like if we don't embrace this change? It's pretty bleak. So, you know, just to further that uh, that film analogy, uh, just in the same way that, you know, digital photos are the same, right? You, you capture your memories. Like the meat that we're going to create is you're going to get that same experience. It's going to be the same meat experience, but with a far lower footprint on the planet. But if we don't do it, to answer your question, like we are running into a seriously existential threat of civilizational collapse from climate change and other types of strings that we are pulling in the planetary system, right? And you never know which string it's going to be. And it's usually a cumulative effect of all of the damage that we're doing. But right now, we aren't on track to meet any of the goals that the UN and others have set at the climate accord, the various climate accord conferences that have occurred, right? We're not on track to meet those. And one of the fastest ways that we could get on track would be to shift very rapidly away from animal agriculture and toward animal-free protein technologies, and we could allow a reforestation to occur that would sequester a lot of carbon. And so I'm hopeful that that's what will happen. If we can't get our act together and do that, though, I truly believe that we are facing like a, a perhaps a future that's unrecognizable to us. We're already starting to see it. You know, we're seeing uh, droughts, wildfires. I mean, here in California, where we're recording right now, like wildfire season is not a season anymore. It's all year round. You know, droughts, floods, pandemics, uh, frequent hurricanes. You know, this is not a way to run a civilization. You know, we have benefited as a human civilization for thousands of years from a relatively stable climate. And if we start altering that, you end up making it a really difficult time to continue doing what we're doing. Thank God for... Well, thank the universe for science because we do have some key information. You know, it's a somber note and it's not pretty to think about what could happen if we don't act, but it's not as though we don't have the information to help heal the planet, help guide us out of this. And not only that, but this is like the greatest business opportunity there is. Like, you know, for so long, it has been profitable to destroy the world. And now you have a chance to make it profitable to actually save the world. Like, wouldn't that be great if we could actually create business opportunities from saving the world and saving humanity? I mean, that is what we're facing right now. The investor interest in the animal free protein space is very hot. And there will be some people who are just allergic to terms like, you know, business opportunity or profit or anything like that. But the fact is, like, again, it's been profitable to damage the world. We need to make it profitable to save the world. And, for example, like once solar panels, for example, are cheaper always than uh, fossil fuels, you'll see a rapid transition to them, of course. And that's the same here. Like, if we can get meat that is animal-free, that is cheaper and tastes better than conventional meat, that's what it's going to take. I and mean, that's really what it's going to take. In terms of that opportunity, if someone's listening and let's say they're a university student or high school student, or maybe they're in a career at the moment and they're passionate about this, want to be part of change and thinking that they might look at a career change, it seems like there is an enormous amount of opportunities. We just spoke about the cell-based meat and the precision fermentation dairy and the microprotein that you're doing, but there's uh, cell-based leather there's cell-based collagen. There's there's so many different avenues to, to sort of get involved here. Yeah, well, I'm going to answer your question directly, but I do just have to tell a quick cool story about cultivated collagen here, which is that, so um, there's a company called Geltor that makes collagen through precision fermentation. Now, of course, collagen is the main thing in your skin, the main protein in your skin and in cow skin and so on. It's the building block of your skin. And uh, so when my book, Clean Meat, came out, Geltor grew 
a leather, like a lab-grown leather binding for the first copy ever. And so Queen Me, the book, was the first and still only ever lab-grown, oh, excuse me, lab-grown leather-bound book. And so we made one copy of the book, the first off the press, bound it in Gel Tours lab-grown leather, and put it up on uh, as an auction item for some collector who would want it. And uh, this is a pretty historic item, you know, the world's first ever lab-grown leather-bound book. And uh, somebody bought it for $13,000. And uh, we donated 100% of the proceeds to the Good Food Institute. And uh, it was like a national news story. It was pretty cool. And so you can go online and look at photos of that book. It's pretty cool. Um, but uh, you can still get Queen Meat even without the Wabgrown leather binding on it. But that is one cool, uh, one cool copy of it that's out there. Now, to answer your question directly, Simon, I get asked about this all the time. Like, oh, what should I do? What should I study? You know, I want to help this space. Well, I would suggest whatever you like and whatever you're good at. So, you know, if you, for example, are an HR specialist and you're thinking, oh, I want to help this, so should I go study microbiology? No, these companies need HR departments too, right? They need accountants, they need video editors, they need graphic designers. Lawyers. Like, yeah, 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 I, I can assure you they need lawyers. <laughs> um, and so, like, it's what you're good at. Like, this is an industry like any other, and they have lots of different positions to help advance it. Um, or, you know, you start your own company. Um, there's lots of uh, resources out there to do so. There's a lot of investors out there interested in backing these early stage companies. So, uh, you know, if you have an idea, maybe think about going and starting your own company. But there are so many opportunities to actually make a big difference in your life through your career. Too many people think, well, you know, I have to have a job to make money and then I'll use my money to donate something because then I can donate to a charity that will do good in the world. Well, what if your job could be your form of doing good in the world. And maybe we'll do even more good than a charity could, possibly speaking. You know, innovation and technology, as we've been talking about, really is going to help drive these changes that are so desperately needed. And so I think that we, you think about, like, your career can be the source of the good that you're doing in the world. And if you want to study microbiology or if you love tissue engineering or you love cell biology, that's great. That's awesome. Good, do that. But you don't have to. You don't have to be one of those type of people in order to make this happen. Lots of ways to to get involved. Become a podcaster. I've heard that, you know, I've heard that a lot of people <laughs> listen if you're Simon Hill. To finish 20, 30, 20, 40, I walk into uh, a, a typical grocery store here in the United States and I, I walk over to the meat section. Uh, what does it look like? I, I think in the past, a lot of people have just thought of protein as being synonymous with a hunk of flesh from a, from a slaughtered animal's body. In the future, take 2030 as an example, so nine years from now, uh, it'll be far more diverse than that. You know, protein is not going to be just a slaughtered animal's flesh. You can have protein from plants. You can have protein from animal cell culture. You can have protein from fungi. You have microbial, you're going to have hybrid. There's I mean, all these different types of protein. And it's going to create not only a more sustainable food industry, but a far more interesting one too. So think about it like this. You know, if you take the time after humans had domesticated cows and started drinking milk, but before when anybody had figured out how to make milk curdle into cheese. So nobody had ever dreamt of Gouda or Brie or cheddar or Swiss or any of the other types of cheeses that people eat today. Well, at that time, when cheese finally gets invented, it's a novel food, right? Like nobody has ever even thought about this, let alone dreamt or fantasized about it. And today, it is an addiction for people. I mean, how many times have you heard I could go vegan except for cheese? It is like the food that people love. They just can't let it go. And that is amazing given that it is a novel food for humanity. Like it's only a few thousand years old. 
Uh, for most of human history, there was no cheese. And yet today, it's something that people obsess over. Well, what novel culinary experiences might be out there waiting that we just haven't yet invented through cellular agriculture or microbial fermentation or combinations of fungi and plant proteins together? What new foods are out there that nobody has ever dreamt of that we could be enjoying and maybe even addicted to, hopefully they'll be healthier than cheese, and those foods might be on that shelf in 2030 or 2040. Have you heard of Val, Val Foods? Yeah, I know they're doing like exotic species like kangaroo and all that, yeah. That's interesting, right? Yeah, yeah, well, it's interesting because most people, you know, they eat only a few species of animal. Well, maybe in the future, you'll have a Val kangaroo that's cultivated that you could do. Or, you know, maybe you'll have something really, really cool. So for example, you know, you walked into your friend's home today and let's say she has like on her counter a bread maker or an ice cream maker. Not that remarkable. It's kind of cool, but not that remarkable. But what if they had a meat maker on their counter and you just order tea bags full of stem cells and you drop them in and you can make the meat right there on your counter, like truly local, artisanal, hyper-local meat that you can make. And maybe instead of one species, you could hybridize. So you think about like a turducken, right? So, you know, people, some people like eating a turducken. For those of you who don't know, it's like a chicken stuffed inside of a duck, stuffed inside of a turkey, then you cut it open and you eat three species of bird all at one time. I don't know why anybody wants to do that, but you know, some people like it. Sounds like a, a good way to start a zoonotic disease. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's a very good point, actually. Very good point. But you know, what if you could have like a cultivated turducken where you actually interweave those cells together? So it's not just like a crude stuff of one bird inside of another bird inside of another bird, but actually, you know, creating something. Create new flavors, yeah, new, new experience. Exactly. And so to me, like this is an opportunity, yes, to save the world, yes, to prevent animal cruelty, yes, to reduce pandemic risk and so on. But it's also an opportunity to create really interesting novel culinary experiences that could be even more pleasurable than any of the things that we are eating today. Paul, I love it. Thank you so much for joining me, for inspiring all of us, educating us about this. Uh, I need to take you up on that and come up to Sacramento and see what you guys are doing up there. But uh, love what you're doing. And uh, I would love for you to come back and, and join me anytime and do this again. That's fun, Simon. Thanks so much. As I mentioned to you before we started, my wife and I both listened to your podcast and it's a real honor to be on with you. So I appreciate it. There we go. I hope you found that interesting, instructive, illuminating, and clarifying. Of course, if you did, please share with your friends and family on the socials. The more people that we can help together, the better. And while you're there, make sure that we're connected. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at plant underscore proof. Quick one before I let you go. I am often asked what supplements I take probably one of the most common questions that I get actually. So I finally got around and created an in-depth supplement guide, totally free, that you can download along with a bunch of other free guides at plantproof.com. Inside, it contains information about daily supplements for everyday wellness, along with performance supplements. The daily supplement that I personally take is a multi-nutrient called Essential 8 by NutraKind. This is a product I formulated for NutraKind alongside their team that specifically contains the eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall a little short in. Omega-3s from algae, B12, vitamin D3 from mushroom, iodine from seaweed, calcium, zinc, selenium, and iron. 
the right forms in the right doses to complement your plant-rich diet. To find out more or subscribe to a monthly delivery, head to NutraKind.com. That's N-U-T-R-I-K-Y-N-D.com. And use the code PLANTPROOF for 15% off your purchase. So in summary, grab a copy of the supplement guide at plantproof.com. And if you are in the market for a daily multi-nutrient to cover your bases, head to Nutrikind.com and use the code PLANTPROOF for 15% off. On that lovely note, it's time to bring this one to a close. Thank you so much for hanging out with me and for your ongoing interest in evidence-based nutrition. I appreciate you and I look forward to repeating it all again in a few days time. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.